Good evening and welcome to HealthBeat, a program where WDIY and our friends from the Leonard Parker Pool Institute for Health discuss the social determinants of health. This evening, we once again welcome our friend Edward Meehan, the Executive Director of the Pool Institute for Health. Edward, good evening. Good evening, Greg. It's always good to be with you, and I'm looking forward to our conversation this evening. We're also welcoming Dr. Beth Kariva. Dr. Kariva is a family physician at Lehigh Valley Health Network. She completed her medical school and residency training at Thomas Jefferson University. She currently serves as Associate Medical Director of Value-Based Care Delivery and Quality Improvement within the Lehigh Valley Physicians Group and is the Vice Chair of Clinical Programs in the Department of Family Medicine. Her current research includes NIH funding for lung cancer screening. Doctor, you are a very busy person. Welcome to HealthBeat. Well, good evening, and thank you for having me today on the show. Looking forward to the conversation. Thank you. Previously on HealthBeat, we've talked about social determinants of health in our community, and today we'll change course and talk about a specific disease that affects many of us in the greater Lehigh Valley, diabetes. Each November, the American Diabetes Association works to raise the awareness of the disease of diabetes, and for the next 30 minutes, our goal is not only to provide information, but also have a conversation about diabetes in our community. This includes high diabetes rates nationally and in our census tracts 18 and 20. And we'll tell you more about community action, how we can collectively do things to fight this epidemic. Ed, census tracts 18 and 20. Once again, where are these communities? Greg, the census tracts 18 and 20 are census tracts in Allentown, and if you can picture from Center City heading west along 2 Street out to just past 17th Street. So we're very interested in those two census tracts. It's about 10,000 people in the two tracks. And one of the neighborhoods that people might recognize as a name, especially long-time Allentonians and long-time Lehigh Valley folks, is Franklin Park. Uh, and so there's a resurgence of community activity around the neighborhood, particularly in Franklin Park. It's a communities in uh, Census Tract 18 and 20, very, very uh, solid communities. There's about a 65% population that is Latina, Latino, and 11% African American. There are challenges. About 34% of that neighborhood is in poverty, and about uh, one quarter of adults do not have a high school diploma. Uh, so you're talking about a really solid neighborhood, great place to live, play, worship, um, work but a neighborhood that does have challenges. And, and of course, because we're interested in the social factors, the determinants that influence health, we're interested in making sure that all the communities in Lehigh Valley have a robust community life. And we're beginning with the census tracts 18 and 20 in Franklin Park. Doctor, in the past 20 years, cases of diabetes are really on the increase. What's going on out there? So quite a few factors contributing to that. One thing we see is increasing trends towards decreased physical activity, more processed foods, particularly in in younger people, so adolescents and young adults, which is really concerning because we know that puts them at a greater risk for diabetes across the span of their lifetime. We also know the pandemic has been really hard on our, our communities in terms of social isolation, stress, all factors that also increase risk for chronic illness. So with the pandemic, did people just have a tendency to not be as active or perhaps make uh, not as good choices when it came to taking care of themselves? Did they have anything to do with it, or is this just something that's baked in? 
Greg, I, I think Dr. Kareva, I'm sure, will want to reply, but what we have found in all of our work on social determinants is that the pandemic just really amped everything up that already existed. So if you had disparities to begin with, you had disparities just increased that much more because so many more things were exposed, having to do with jobs, having to do with access to, you know, uh, whether you could protect your family, whether you had to go to work or not. So, and uh, as Dr. Kareva suggests, you know, the stress on the family and choices, limited, uh, increased limited choices. Doctor, want to weigh in on this? Absolutely. And I, and I would second that in terms of an amping up of challenges that people may already have been experiencing. We know that, that gyms closed many Members of our community experience increased financial hardships, which may have led to greater limitations in terms of food choices. We know grocery bills are skyrocketing right now, which can further add to that. And then, of course, the component of stress, because stress causes cortisol to be released in our body, which in and of itself can raise blood sugar, increase appetite, cravings, all those things that we know may lead us to reach for less healthy options as compared to those food choices that may may help to improve health. Can you give us a little bit of information about cortisol? What is it and what does it do to us? Sure. So cortisol is a stress hormone that's released from the adrenal glands, which sit on top of our kidneys, released during times of stress. And it, it can have a protective factor in terms of increasing blood sugar into the bloodstream. So from an evolutionary standpoint, if you were running away from a, a tiger, as I often mm-hmm. tell my you wanted to have a little bit more sugar pulsing through your, your system to help your muscles to do what they needed to do. However, many of us experience that when we're, when we're sedentary and not moving. And then that same response does not have the benefit that it does when we're running away from an actual physical danger. And chronically, when it's elevated, that results in, in some increased blood sugar levels. And again, as I mentioned, can also drive up the appetite. It's really interesting. Ed? When you look at the census tracts, 18 and 20, 10.6 of those patients have been diagnosed with diabetes. Give us a little bit more background on why this occurs in this area. Sure. And to do that, let me just back up. And, you know, it's one of the major, one of the four major things we focus on with the Pool Institute for Health is what does the data tell us? We can all have our opinions, but let's look at statistically and, and factually what's going on. So just think about it from a national perspective. This is 2022 data that's just released. Nationally, there's been an increase in the prevalence of diabetes over the last 20 years. 37 million Americans have diabetes, 11% of the population. Eight and a half million people have diabetes, but they've not been diagnosed and don't know they have it. And if that's not frightening enough, 95 million people are pre-diabetic, so left untended on the progression that they're on, there's a good chance of them becoming diabetic. Those splits, as we've talked very often on this show, are uh, found along racial, educational, and income level lines. So by race, the number of nationally of folks diagnosed with diabetes is 12% for African American, almost 12% for Hispanic, a little over 7% for white folks. Education level, if you have less than a high school diploma, chances are good that you are 13% of the population uh, is uh, diabetic, as opposed to only 7% of folks who have a high school diploma. And if you are uh, in a family below poverty level, the number of folks diagnosed as diabetics is 14%, almost three times higher than folks who are of middle income. 
So nationally, you can see that it's a huge, huge problem, uh, and it's split, as I said, along racial, ethnic, educational, and income lines. And that translates also to Census Tract 18 and 20, which is a high minority community, and you've got 10% of the population diabetic. We don't know how many, I don't know how many are pre-diabetic, but that's a very large number. And rather than talk about percentages, let's just make it a little more real. There are about 10,000 people who live in those two census tracts, 10,000 folks per this last census. If 10% are diabetic, that's 1,000 people with diabetes. Now, that, again, is just a number until we start saying, no, we know those communities. We, we can walk those communities. We may know people who live in those communities. Their mothers, their fathers, their sisters, their children, their coworkers, their church friends, they're our neighbors. So how do we think about this, not from the cold statistical point, but know the facts, know the statistics, and then see how we translate that into a dialogue, a conversation about how we can do a better job. Dr. Kareva, Ed has been talking about pre-diabetic. What is that? And how would one know that they might be going down the wrong path and headed toward diabetes? So pre-diabetes is a state in which your blood sugar is elevated above a normal range, but not yet meeting criteria for diabetes. And that we would really know based on, on blood work tests that people would get back. To his point, we do see a growing number of of people with prediabetes. And frankly, it's, it's an area where we have a lot of opportunity because I don't know that it's discussed quite as often as, as it could be in terms of helping people to understand that having prediabetes does not mean that they are going to develop diabetes. Diabetes can be prevented, and there are tools that we have to help to lower that blood sugar back into a normal range once it is identified that it's elevated. Doctor, when Ed talked about the racial disparities, 12% of those nationally diagnosed are black, 11.8% are Hispanic. What's your reaction to those statistics? Uh, disappointment, uh, but not an entirely surprise. Certainly, we know that there are significant health inequities when it comes to, to prediabetes and diabetes, um, need for culturally tailored interventions, really thinking about those who may be more vulnerable to either having uncontrolled diabetes or progressing on from prediabetes to diabetes, and really understanding um, what our patients maybe and our community members may be thinking about these so that we can best help them. So, for example, for some Latinx patients, there's this concept of fatalismo in, in that if you have multiple family members with diabetes, you may view it as something that's inevitable rather than something that can be prevented. So really engaging patients' voices um, to understand their priorities, what their thoughts are, and helping to think about plans for them to mitigate some of those rising risks. So how hard is it to engage these voices that you're talking about? What are some of the difficulties that you run into? What makes you say, come on, we can do this? It's a great question, and honestly, I find that it actually hasn't been that difficult. I think often we don't ask the questions, we make assumptions, and when we, we ask people, you know, what, do you, what are your thoughts about this? What has your experience been in your family? What do you know about this? People are generally pretty, pretty forthcoming. I do think we have some opportunity to continue to intentionally promote diversity in our healthcare workforce to better meet the needs of the population, to facilitate some of those conversations, particularly for those who may respond more favorably to those who are language concordant. So something that, that we, an area where we have some opportunity. But overall, I, I think it's not that difficult if we have some intentionality around it and really ask those questions. And Ed, that's kind of been your mission, isn't it? I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. You're trying to engage these communities to talk about these social determinants of health. 
Sure. And Greg, I, we've talked about this on the show before. You know, I always say that food and music are where you find community. If there's not food and music, you're probably not in a community setting. Those are deeply held cultural things that people have. They've grown up with them, their traditions in the family and such, how you prepare meals, how you cook, how you gather. Uh, they're very, very deeply ingrained. And if you're thinking about a traditional clinical model where you're talking with a patient about your pre-diabetic, you've got to do something about that. It's just, uh, as Dr. Karavia is, is mentioning, it's, it's like she's having success, it can be done, but I think it can be uh, enabled just that much more by us not thinking about the patient as an individual, but the patient in the context of their family, of the community where they reside, of the traditions and culture of the community in which they live, and then how do we have the supports necessary to say, what can we do to not help one patient, but how can we help many patients because they can support one another in thinking about food preparation, slight changes in diet, encouragement of walking programs or whatever it might be. There's a pretty long tradition and history of community-based interventions on uh, enabling walking programs, uh, cooking classes, church-based cooking classes, things of that sort. So I think those things can be done, but I think the opportunity is to do two different pieces. One is for, from the clinical standpoint, to address social needs of the patient. What do you need in order to enable you to prevent diabetes or to manage your diabetes? And then secondarily, the social determinants. How can we help entire communities with the challenge of diabetes? November is the American Diabetes Association's month of recognition of this disease. We're going to talk more about it when we come back right after this message. You're listening to WDIY 88.1 FM. Do you have a car that you're trading in? How about an old truck or boat that's taking up space? Let WDIY help you get rid of unwanted vehicles and turn them into financial support for the station. It's a simple and easy process. We handle all the towing, title, and transfer, and it may be tax deductible. Turn your vehicle into the programs you love. To learn more, visit WDIY.org or call 610-694-8100, extension 4. If you are a Golden Age folky and love the music of Woody Guthrie, Bob Dylan, Judy Collins, Joan Baez, and the Kingston Trio, WDIY is the place to be on Monday nights. From 7 to 9 p.m. on Folk Classics, all of that great music from the late 1940s to the late 60s will fill the airwaves, and we will welcome your ideas about the artists and songs you'd like to hear. Folk Classics, Mondays from 7 to 9 p.m. right here on WDIY. Welcome back to HealthBeat. We're talking about diabetes with Dr. Beth Kariva and Edward Meehan from the Leonard Parker Pool Institute for Health. Dr. Kariva, you have some new data to share, don't you? I do. We're now in a position where we're able to more systemically track the, the most pressing social determinants of health across our population uh, based on doing some more detailed screenings, which has, has been really interesting uh, in terms of looking at where the needs are in areas. And not surprisingly to many of us, we're actually seeing that social isolation is the number one social determinant that's not considered to be met by patients who, who report through these screeners. Um, this is followed by smoking, physical inactivity, stress, and depression. And these are all things that either increase risk for developing diabetes or can make it more difficult to manage diabetes for those who have already been diagnosed. So really helpful information in terms of allowing us to think about what are those community-level interventions that might help to address some of these factors. 
Um, because even if a patient has diabetes, I may only spend an hour or two with them an entire year. So really limited, precious time that I have to sit down with them one-on-one. And then they're out in the communities living their lives the rest of the time. And we do know that a, a person's zip code, more than any other factor, has the greatest influence on their health, far beyond what happens within the walls of the medical offices. So really thinking more strategically about where are those unmet social needs and how can we engage our, our community partners to think about caring for that, that group of individuals a little bit differently. Ed, can you bring that home to the Lehigh Valley? How do we insert these findings into these specific areas where the 10,000 people live? Yeah, and exactly. And the doctor just described is exactly what the Pool Institute for Health would like to do aspirationally going forward is just that. The, the clinical ability, as the doctor has mentioned, is, is somewhat limited because of time and resources. And there are so many other ways to uh, have communication and contact with individuals who are having challenges such as diabetes or prediabetes. So how do we take full advantage of that in a way that is respectful and understanding of the culture and the context and the community in, work in which the person lives? So four big pieces of the work, how do we think about the determinants of health that are not just health care? Uh, and those are, you know, as we've discussed a number of times, have to do with safe and healthy housing, with adequate access to food and making sure that people have the proper nutrition, that the context of their lives is in safe and healthy communities where they feel comfortable walking, uh, where they feel their children are safe. There's overall a number of social factors that impact health. So interesting, think about the uh, driving forces that were just mentioned, social isolation and depression. My goodness, you know, those are things that are community issues that need to be brought to bear. Uh, not just for the quality of life, but also it'll keep you healthy. Uh, and we're, if we begin to learn that and understand that, what we need to do is make sure we have the proper data, which looks like we're moving in that right direction. Secondly, we can't do anything unto those communities in Census Tract 18 and 20. We have to do with, at best, hopefully they can do for themselves. What people who live in those neighborhoods can do for themselves would be fantastic. What help they need, how can we help them? That involves conversation, dialogue, respectful communication, authentic engagement at the community level, which is something that we are learning how to do better, and we can do much, much better as we, as we go along. 10% of the population live here. 1,000 people are diabetic. How would you like to go about that? Can we help? How can you help your neighbor? How can you help yourself? How do we develop the cross-sector connectivity with not-for-profit organizations to make sure that everybody's working on the same page to say, Diabetes may not be what you're working on at the moment, but maybe you are working on youth programs, which would be helpful for exercise for kids and reduction of social isolation, particularly coming out of COVID. And then finally, how do we do this in a sustainable way? How do we develop the capacity at a neighborhood level to make sure that we're still looking at the proper data, to make sure that we're still making sure that everybody who needs to be at the table in the conversation is at the table and in the conversation? How do we develop that respectful way for agencies to work with one another, sharing information and figuring out how to have a multiplier effect, and then sustain that over time? Because this is not for the faint of heart, and it's not short-term work. It's work that has to be done over a significant period of time. Those diabetes numbers happened over a 20-year period of time. There's not a magic wand to be waved. We can do a lot of good things in the short term, but we need to have sustained, respectful 
interventions that work for the community and that will work in terms of improving those numbers. Doctor, if a person listening knows that they ought to be exercising more or maybe eating healthier, but really just can't get started, what resources are there in our community? So I, I generally talk to people first about making some, some dietary changes. Always want to be sensitive to the cultural context and first asking and, and understanding what they're eating currently. We do have some nutrition services available, really steering patients towards a, a lower carbohydrate um, and or Mediterranean diet, which we know has the best data in terms of diabetes prevention and management. Uh, in terms of physical activity, a lot of barriers have come up in that space in the past year. We talked about the pandemic earlier. Gyms were closed. Really encouraging people to leverage videos on, on YouTube and other platforms and, and thinking about what it is that they can do within the context of their homes. Certainly, if they do have safe places to exercise outdoors, that's always a very positive thing, too, and particularly so if they can find an exercise buddy because we know that that's that's beneficial on, on many levels. But at the end of the day, we know that weight control is a major factor in, in thinking about diabetes. And 80% of weight loss or control really comes down to calorie intake. So the, the biggest interventions that we have are really thinking about nutrition. Um, we do know some of our local food pantries do have some some sections that they tailor and will highlight that these are diabetes-friendly foods. Similarly, Meals on Wheels will deliver diabetic-friendly meals. So we do have some really great resources for those who are our most vulnerable. But I find a lot of times it's, it's the education piece. And again, thinking about that cultural context and, and what changes people are able to make. Um, you know, as we talked about previously, financial hardship, we know grocery bills are rising. So thinking about things like beans and lentils and other lower cost but still very nutritious foods. You can't turn on the TV or the radio or some type of social media and not see a commercial for some type of diabetes treatment, a shot or a pill. Have we unfortunately normalized do people now know, well, if I get this, there's a treatment? Does that have any effect on the way we look at this disease now? I don't know that that's something that I've observed to that extent. I think in general, when I do need to make this diagnosis, this is still really devastating news for people. And yes, they know that there there are treatments and we're thankful that they exist. And uh, quite a few of the treatments, particularly for those with more advanced disease, require injectable medications, which, you know, is not something that most people are, are happy to hear. Insulin requires refrigeration, which adds complexity. Um, and it's really a, a difficult illness to manage in terms of having to think about choices that you're making literally all day long from breakfast until the time that you go to bed and how they may impact your blood sugar. So I, I do find that this is still something that's it's a really tough news for people to hear if they do get to this point. Are people sometimes afraid to go to the doctor and find out if they've got this problem? Absolutely. Um, I, I do get that sometimes that people come in and they may have had some symptoms. Some of the earlier signs and symptoms that we see are increased thirst, increased frequency of urination. Sometimes people will have this for weeks, months before they finally come in because they, they may be fearful of getting bad news and are trying to avoid or postpone that for as long as they can. Greg, I, w I would say in, in response to both of your last questions, uh, it's not just diabetes specific, but it's just kind of the American way. 
We always think there's going to be a magic wand you can wave to make the problem go away. There's always going to be a quick fix, a quick solution. And when it comes to long-term chronic illness and things like diabetes, they're of long duration. The solutions are of long duration. And so, you know, there may be, there may be medicine, uh, thank goodness for medicine that can be helpful, but there's an awful lot of things that are just long, tedious things that people have to do, as the doctor mentioned. You know, everybody makes 20 choices a day, the stairs or the elevator, the fries or the side salad. You know, those aren't, those aren't magic wand things. Those are just things that you have to be conscious about. Behavior change is really, really tough. Uh, it's very difficult to get people to change their behavior, especially when you're asking them to do lots of small things day in, day out, and, and stick with it. So that's, you know, that's really tough. And part of it also is, yeah, people don't want to go to the doctor because they don't want to hear the bad news. But we need to really think more and more about how do you use your primary care providers in a way that's helpful to you as coaches, colleagues, advisors, uh, and your support team. These can be just small adjustments. Uh, you mentioned walking up the stairs instead of taking the elevator. Uh, when you say exercise, you're not really, you're not talking about going to the weight room and you know pounding a lot of weights here, are you? You're just like move more. Well, I think some people might be talking about going to the gym, and that would be great. But let's just say you live in that neighborhood and you and you can't afford the gym, or you know you've got other things going on. Can you find the time to go for a walk a couple of times a day? And and yeah, can you take the stairs instead of the elevator? Can you can you think about going meatless one night a week or something like that? Uh, just tiny little choices. How do we get people to do those behavior change things without? the impediments of saying, I, I can't because of money, I can't because of access, you know, and there may be things we need to do to, re, to uh, improve the ability for people to do that. Is Franklin Park safe enough for, feel safe enough for people to walk at night? Do they feel that their kids are safe walking to school? Do they feel that their kids are safe in the playground? Those become bigger social determinant questions that can enable then the ability for people to then live healthier lives. And by, by the way, one other thing that I'd mentioned, Greg, the interesting thing about addressing those upstream social determinant factors around diabetes is you're also, those are also the risk factors that you're addressing for high blood pressure, for heart disease, for stroke, for cancer. Yeah. Doctor, can diabetes be reversed? So typically we say once you have diabetes, you always have diabetes because there is some elevated risk. But we have many patients who are what we describe as being diet controlled, meaning that they have a history of diabetes, but they're have a normal blood sugar without any medications, and that's something that is very possible, um, particularly for those who are successful with weight loss and, and are able to sustain it. So I do always bring that home to patients that there is reason to be hopeful. There are choices that can ma be made that can help to control this and help them to live a, a relatively normal life and not have that burden of illness that many are fearful of when they first hear the word diabetes and think about dialysis and amputations and all kinds kinds of scary things, but it doesn't have to be that way. And there, there are things that we can do to help to prevent that. Add a final thought. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Thank you very much, Dr. Hreva. Very, very informative. And we're happy to share this information. There are so many people with diabetes or family members who have diabetes. Uh, we wish you all good health uh, and, and good life. And finally, a website where people might be able to go to learn more about diabetes. The American Diabetes Association has really great resources uh, for diabetes care and management, as, as do the Centers for Disease Control. Dr. Beth Kariva, thank you very much for being on HealthBeat tonight. Edward, okay. as, <laughs> Edward, as usual, 
We always appreciate time and the work that you do at the Leonard Parker Pool Institute for Health. Thank you, Greg, and appreciate the opportunity. You're listening to WDIY and Health Beat. Have a very good evening. <laughs>